Welcome to Energy in Action. I'm your host, Marcy Young, and as a Mito patient myself, I appreciate you and the community you've helped us to build. This podcast honors the triumphs and struggles of patients and families affected by this disease and celebrates the work being done by doctors and researchers every day to make it a safer world for our people. We are a support group and a podcast focusing on all things related to mitochondrial disease. Welcome to another episode of Energy in Action. I'm your host, Marcy Young, and I'm joined today with two wonderful women who have founded the LHON Collective, Lissa Poinseno and Melinda Marsh. They are everyday patient advocates and co-founders of this organization. So I am looking forward to learning from them and for them to share all of the messages that they have. Have with our community. So welcome, ladies. Melinda, do you want to go first and introduce yourself and kind of tell us why you're involved in this and what this means to you? Absolutely. Thank you, Marcy. As Marcy said, my name's Melinda. About two years ago, our youngest son was diagnosed with labor hereditary optic neuropathy, which its uh, short name is LHON. As it says in the name of optic neuropathy, the issue is with the optic nerve and As a mitochondrial disease, Xavier lost his central vision, uh, and he's maintained some of his peripheral vision. This uh, was a surprise to all of us. He was 13 years old at at age of onset, and in about the span of two and a half months, he had gone from 20-20 vision to um, visually impaired at 2800 vision. So... It's a quick uptick uh, on learning how to support our son and then also a learning curve that mitochondrial disease can happen once it's uh, you know it's in your family. It can happen as a, mi- a mitochondrial genetic mutation. The mother gives it to all children, and so I can also lose my vision uh, or have other mitochondrial-related issues, and my other two sons are also at risk. So that's how we became involved, and we at that time met Lisa Poinsonneau, and we're lucky to have entered a very supportive patient community uh, with Lisa at the helm and uh, have worked together ever since. Thank you for sharing your story. Lisa, tell us about yourself and then we'll kind of get into the depth of the organization and the, the condition. So I got interested in LHON 15 years ago when the oldest of my three children was 19. And he called one day from college and said, Mom, things are blurry. I think I need contacts or glasses. Can you set me up at the optometrist when I'm home for Thanksgiving from college? So I did. And he went to the optometrist the day before Thanksgiving 2008 with his little brother who was then 13. And uh, I went a little bit later to, to, to be part of the conversation about contacts or glasses. And my then 13-year-old finally came into the waiting room after what seemed like a very long time and said, Mom, don't freak out, but Jeremy's blind. And that's when my world turned upside down. Uh, he had witnessed his brother cover one eye, and he was seeing 2020 in one eye. And when he covered the other eye, and the doctor kept asking him to read the letters, and he kept saying, I don't see any letters. What letters? Put the letters up. And then when he put one hand down, he's like, oh... With his good eye, he was seeing him, not the other one. So we spent a couple of months on the medical mystery tour being told it was optic neuritis, maybe it was um, MS, 
Uh, he was treated with steroids, told he'd get his vision back. That didn't happen. The neurologist was pretty sure he had neuromyelitis optica, so they put a catheter in his jugular and did plasmapheresis every other day for a couple of weeks, saying that would, you know, cure the problem. Eventually, genetic testing was done, and we learned he had labor hereditary optic neuropathy. And I'm like, what is that? And I tried to find um, a group, um, support, information, anybody who knew what I was dealing with. And 15 years ago, it was pretty hard to find, but I did find some other patients. I did find some doctors. And so since then, I have been doing all I can to build those connections, create community, welcome people who have this same thing happen to them. And the best part of it is, like Melinda said, mothers pass the mutation that causes it to all their children. So my daughter was 16 at the time, my youngest was 13. So 10 years after my son was affected, my daughter became affected. And I mean, that's not a great thing. However, when it happened, it was great that we knew who the right doctors were. We knew where she should go. We had this very powerful, supportive community. And I was able to put her in touch with people who could support her on her own journey of spending two months going from fully sighted to legally blind. It's, it's not a fun journey, even when you know what, what it is, but at least she didn't have to get the you know, on unnecessary treatments and, you know, doctor visits. It was more a matter of, okay, we know what this is. What do we do? And there's a lot to do. So we did it. So that's, that's what the organization is all about is to um, make the process better for everyone, whether people know it's coming or they don't know it's coming. That's what we do. Wow. Thank you. It, it really has to be such a whirlwind to, as you both have said, have pretty much normal vision and then in the matter of a sh very short time way too short everything just changes so that it changes it could change or it feels like it would change the entire trajectory of your life so let's let's kind of dig into really what lhon is how does it develop and so it affects the optic nerve give me a little briefing on lhon as a whole to give you a briefing, I would say that um, the way it works is that um, there's a point mutation in the mitochondria that is um, incorrect. So you have a, a, a spelling mistake, so to speak, at a point mutation. And about two-thirds of uh, those affected have a particular mutation called 11778. And where there should be a G, there's an A. That's about two-thirds of those affected. The next most common is at a point called 1444. And the next most common is at 3460. And that accounts for about 90% of the people who lose vision. And then there's another 5-10% that have other very rare mutations. So that's the causative problem. It's necessary, but not the only thing. So what's the other thing? They don't really know. It could be for some people, it's just going to happen. For other people, it may be that there are certain environmental factors. Uh, they, they're, they're still trying to sort out what it is. It's known that if an individual smokes, and carries one of those mutations, they are four times more likely to lose vision than if they're a non-smoker, or even if they come into contact with fire, smoke, reactive oxygen species. It creates stress on the mitochondria, and the optic nerves are um, very high energy users, and they reach a certain stress point. They're unmyelinated, and the reactive oxygen species just 
puts it over the edge and a sequence of negative events, uh, negative events happens and there's a lot of apoptosis and the optic nerve fibers die. And for each, it's highly variable by individual. There's, there are small optic nerve fibers, there's medium, there's large, and the small ones control your central vision. And then the, the medium and large control, you know, your, your peripheral vision. So generally, the central vision is lost. My son sort of describes it as putting your hands in front of your face. And your scotoma, your blurry thing happens, your blurry vision happens right in the middle. So you can't recognize faces, you can't read without extreme magnification, you might need audio support. And then peripheral vision sort of depends either on the luck of the draw or environmental factors. It may be that if you avoid smoke and alcohol, you might maintain more peripheral vision than other people. It may be just how your optic nerve structure is and, and it uh, you, you just don't know what's going to impact it. But the bottom line is you incredibly quickly go from 20-20 vision to legally blind, meaning you can't see in the center. That's kind of a quick summary. And then in terms of are there other symptoms, there's a thing loosely called LHON+. And because this is a mitochondrial disease and mitochondria are not only in the optic nerve, they are throughout your body. So there are people who report issues, maybe cardiac, maybe peripheral neuropathy, you know, maybe uh, muscle fatigue and weakness. Things that are heard in the mitochondrial community are also heard in the LH1 community. And it may be people who have lost vision. It may be their maternal relatives who haven't lost vision, but start learning about LHON and mitochondria and go, huh, maybe that's what's causing all this. So there's some uncertainties and some variabilities, but that's kind of a quick nutshell version of it. Wow. Okay. Thank you. Melinda, let's talk a little bit about numbers. I mean, this is definitely part of the rare disease community. How many cases are documented right now? And how many new cases are you finding out about on, let's say, an annual basis? My belief is that there's about 100 affected individuals in the United States per year. When you think about an individual becoming affected, in our case, for example, uh, Xavier has two brothers and then there's myself. So we have to consider, are we considering a patient, the individual who loses their vision, or are we considering patients, those who carry the mutation and may be experiencing those LH1 plus symptoms that Lissa just explained or, or shared. And if we're considering the patient population to include all that carry the mutation, have the risk of losing their vision, and currently may be experiencing other LH1 plus symptoms, our patient population also goes up exponentially. I can understand that. So it's not unheard of to be experiencing the LHON plus symptoms before the blurry vision and legally blind onset? Some people never even lose their vision. Maybe they suffer from migraines or maybe they, they suffer from tremors. Maybe they have central auditory processing disorder, a hearing issue, which has, has commonly been, been shared in the LHON plus community. For example, and maybe they are fully sighted and they stay fully sighted for the maintenance of their rest of their lives. And they are always at risk of also losing their vision. And the way that they may know about and have joined the LH1 plus component of our community is that someone in their family has probably lost vision. And that's how they've learned that mitochondria even exists, possibly, <laughs> and what a mutation is and, and how they may also be a part 
of that community and not just the family member who lost their vision at that point. I'm sure they get a very quick education with for their whole family. And I know that's a big aspect of this condition as well. You know, once one person is diagnosed, not only is the immediate family dealing with this and learning to live with it, but it's the extended family that can also be affected and need to kind of digest it all. That's very accurate. Yeah. And it's also the support of those family members. When someone loses their vision that quickly, they haven't started out their lives as a blind uh, or visually impaired person. So they don't know those skills that one would learn in, in school, such as Braille or voiceover or, or other ad- adaptation skills. An individual may lose their, their vision. There isn't an age where if you pass this certain age, you're, you're in the safe zone. It's not going to happen to you. There are ages where it's more common for men and then more common for women, but it's also possible to have lost one's vision at any point. So, for example, Xavier was 13 but and Jeremy was was 19, but we have individuals where an individual just joined our community in her late 80s and she just lost her vision to to LH1. And there was no record of anyone else in her family. She's the first. But now they all know they are at risk. Yeah. Because she's the matriarch with children who have children. <laughs> and that being since it's a maternally inherited her daughters would then have passed it on to their daughters, of course, unknowingly along along the way. So let's talk about the mental health component of pretty much, we'll say in a minute, losing vision and how that changes your life. Lissa, let's talk a little bit about that. How was that for your family? What have you learned in the community? The emotional health component is a very, very large part of why we have this community, why we build this community, why we work together in the community. With my son, I mean, he was devastated. He talks about how he came home from college and he was sleeping on the couch. He was you know, sleeping in until one o'clock every afternoon. And one day my husband went in and sort of said, Jeremy, come on, get up, start your day. You'll be happier if you do. And he's like, Dad, you know, in my dreams, I see 2020. And when I wake up, I'm facing this nightmare of I can't see anything. Where would you rather be? And it was like, oh, yeah, I understand. I mean, it was just, it's what do you do? How do you cope? And then he did return to college once we understood what was going on. And, and he was really fortunate because he had a great set of friends who were very supportive. But one day a friend was supposed to take him somewhere and his friend had a conflict and he canceled at the last minute. And he called me and he was so sad. And it wasn't that he had to go to where they were going. It was he was he felt so dependent that he couldn't, you know, he had not acquired the skills to travel independently. He has them now. But at the time, he felt terribly dependent, very lost, very sad. And I heard the sadness in his voice on the phone call. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, <laughs> he's going to jump off a tall building and I'll never forgive myself. And I started calling all the resources I could find, trying to figure out, you know, how to support him. And fortunately, several people in town guided me to an individual who happened to have lost his own vision to a different cause around age 40. And he had subsequently gotten a PhD in counseling. And I took my son there. And it was at the San Diego Center for the Blind. And we didn't use the word at the time. We called it the Center for the B Word because we couldn't say it. We weren't 
comfortable with it. We, we were just scared of it. We were, the whole thing was just scary. But we went there and we met with this counselor and it was great. He helped Jeremy imagine that he could have a, a life that was full and rich and happy and that, you know, he could either dwell on the loss of central vision he'd experienced or he could focus on his remaining peripheral vision, all the things he could still do. But it was a path. It was a journey. It was a, you know, going through the five stages of grief. And he went through all of them. I mean, he, he was angry. <laughs> and, you know, who, who can you let your anger out on other than your mom, right? So there was a lot of anger. Um, there was a lot of bargaining. There was depression, all of it. But he eventually worked his way through it all and kind of got to the other side. He found uh, his passion. He loves golf. And I found blind golf. And at first he's like, I'm not playing blind golf. You know, that's slow play. That's terrible. And then he kind of, when he was ready, picked it up and uh, eventually won. He's won three world blind golf championships and nine national golf championships. And he's played in the first USGA Adaptive Open. And so he's found something he's passionate about. It wasn't what he was used to, but it was something else. And it, it's wonderful. Uh, and he's just made the most wonderful friends. He met a woman who thought he was just a typical frat boy when he was sighted. But when he had lost vision, she's like, huh, this guy's kind of deep and unusual. And he met her uh, nine months after he lost vision. And now they're married and have two kids. And, you know, that probably wouldn't have happened had he not you know, gone through this experience and, and, it, and he completely changed his career path. He thought he wanted to um, drive the tour truck for a golf company because my husband and I met in, in the golf industry. However, he started giving talks to various groups trying to look for funding for LHON research and he enjoyed it so much that he's now become a professional inspirational speaker. And he, he shares his story and he talks about, you know, working, learning about interdependence and that, you know, thinking that you might need help and support isn't such a bad thing after all. You can do things as a team. And so for him, it's worked out. It's worked out really well. There's, I mean, it's not easy. There are day to day struggles, but you can get through and around it. That was really very beautiful to share. And I appreciate that he's found an alternate path that can be really wonderful for him. I love the story about him and his wife. That is so cute. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. What a wonderful mother you are. I mean, to we don't know the life we're given. You have handled it with such grace. And to be able to talk like this, you're just you're so impressive. So thank you. So Melinda, let's let's hear from you. I want to hear about the stories of, you know, possible difficulty, probable difficulty, we'll say. I really can't imagine this sudden onset like that. So tell us how that affected your kids. Xavier uh, had a similar time frame where, Mom, I think I need glasses. I can't see so well. And in for glasses and post a, as we call it, diagnostic journey in the mitochondrial world. I'm sure many of our different ailments can, can relate. We received the LHON diagnosis and that they're currently... I always like to use that word, isn't a, a cure. So uh, Xavier's in seventh grade at that point, and uh, we're in a private school. Now here in the United States, services are provided in a, in a public school format, but not in a private school. And so our conversation uh, among our family is, do we 
yank Xavier out of a school where he has his friends, uh, where his social network is, is his um, support network. He's been going to the same school now for seven years simply because of this diagnosis. And then he becomes the brand new, doesn't know how to handle being blind kid who has no friends and sits at the table for lunch by himself. And that was a recipe for mental disaster. So we decided instead, and Xavier was a big proponent, to stay in the school. And we worked with a teacher for the visually impaired on the weekends from our home. And Xavier finished out the seventh and the eighth grade uh, being a good self-advocate at his uh, school where he was already. And the TVI, or Teacher for the Visually Impaired, was uh, a consultant to the teachers on an email basis, and she was providing academic support on the weekends with Xavier. And he has since decided, because he's a huge sports guy, that he really wanted a larger school setting for high school. So he decided he wanted to attend the public school to have that, that, that camaraderie and sports opportunity. Since losing vision, Xavier started in the seventh grade with, actually, he'd already started prior to losing vision, and he was, uh, he was doing well, very well. In fact, at the end of his eighth grade year, seventh grade, excuse me, they asked him to join the high school team instead of moving on in the eighth grade to, to, the, to the middle school uh, year of, of rowing, the final middle school year. And he said, thanks so much, but I think I'm going to try running. And I'm thinking, Why? We have this, you, you're not exactly the best coxswain, but you are a spectacular rower. Why do we need to change something that's working when we're still in, when everything is, is in flux and, and up in the air and the balls are all, we're trying to catch them and they're, some are landing and some are being caught. And, and he said, yep, I want to do running. So, okay. And we went out and looked for somebody who might be able to work with somebody who has their peripheral vision but is legally blind and we found a spectacular coach here in the San Diego County area and she'd already coached a young man who'd gone off to university in a D1 school as a visually impaired individual in the track team and said yes I know how to do this Xavier let's see if you've got what it takes so he came and he did his um, trial and she said you're fast and we could work together and I'd love to work with you. So for eighth grade, he joined her run club after school and strengthened his running skills and found that he really has a passion. And this year in high school, uh, in addition to his academics, uh, which are being supported by the teacher for the visually impaired on the school premises, Xavier's also learned to be a good advocate because although one has uh, a TVI on site in a school environment, it doesn't mean that every class goes well and that just because you have all of those resources doesn't mean that they, they all come to play just as they should in a perfect concert every day. And those years of seventh and eighth grade of having to be his own advocate are standing him in, in good stead to say, this format doesn't work for me. And We've talked about it, and I, I remember that the three letters are IEP, and uh, we need to change how you're presenting this, but I may not be able to see it that well, but there's nothing wrong with my intelligence, so let's let's figure out how we can do this differently. And uh, so he's doing great there, and he's on the sports side. Coming back, he's uh, uh, joined the cross-country team, and as a ninth grader, he was invited to be a part of their this fall, their varsity team and he's their first ninth grader to ever be on their varsity team and he's also their first visually impaired uh, student uh, on the cross-country team in the history of the school 
he's very proud of those metrics and, and he ought to be, and we're very proud of him. And he's, his passion is truly track. And then some of the aspects of the, of a field, track and field. So he's really looking forward to the spring semester where he gets to, to do that. But as you can, as you can hear, he's fast. And so uh, he's enjoying and how he runs on uneven terrain. He doesn't have a, an assistant. He doesn't use a lead. He simply runs. And apparently he runs very, very fast. So he's, uh, he's, he's happy in, in his new school environment. And he's continuing to learn how to be an advocate for himself. And he's continuing to figure out where he's willing to take though that help that uh, and and see that as a partnership. As Lissa was sharing, Jeremy had to work through. I'm not dependent. I'm partnering with others who want to partner with me, who are honored that I've asked them and want to be my have greater friendships, have have stronger connections with me, and it's not an inconvenience to them. Savior's only 15, and we're he's still very independent and and working through when those partnerships are a good idea and i think with maturity that will also come but in the meantime he's he's advocating for those things that he needs to do everything in life as independently as humanly possible that's awesome i give him so much credit i can't run and i do have my site yeah me neither <laughs> <laughs> he's doing exceptionally well and I give you a lot of credit for including him in the decision on which school made the most sense for him when all of this happened. I'm sure you could see advantages to both environments, but I'm sure that it felt more comfortable to be where he already knew and where everyone knew him while he got adjusted to this new life, you know? And so now he can take advantage of some more services, maybe when school gets a little bit more rigorous at the high school level. Again, a very, very proud mom. I'm sure you are. And I'm so impressed with you as well. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a family affair. So together, you have formed LHON Collective. So Lissa, kick us off with some information about your organization and what your goals are and how our listeners can get involved if they're if it's appropriate. Sure. So LHON Collective is very much an evolution of the work that's been going on for the last, you know, 15 years and even more than that with people who have been uh, working on LHON before I got involved. Our intention is as the name says, collective, right? We want to work collectively with anyone and everyone who has uh, an interest in advancing um, the cause of, of LHON. And our intention is to work globally and, you know, in every, in every space we can. So anyone who does have an interest in LHON, you know, where there are doctors, there are researchers, there are genetic counselors, there are families, um, there are funders, whoever is interested in advancing the cause of LHON, they are more than welcome to reach out to us and, and I work towards how we can, uh, work together. This is, um, like I said, it's a new organization built on a rich history, meaning that we have been um, in a loose way uh, working with individuals impacted by LHON for a very long time now. We've been having LHON conferences where we bring together you know, over 100 people who have an interest in and a vested interest in LHON. So uh, at our most recent convening, we had 40 people who were affected by LHON, another 40 who are carriers like Melinda and myself, and there's another 40 that are cited supporters who, who care. And so those kinds of convenings are important. 
there's good in everything. And we made good out of COVID where we've been having um, Zoom gatherings for several years now and taken advantage of a couple of years of not having an in-person conference and creating Zoom events around Facebook groups on various topics. So for instance, Melinda was describing the experience of someone who's got a, a, a student in seventh, eighth grade navigating uh, education. My daughter was 26, so education wasn't her direct concern. It was, how do I keep my job? Can I keep my job? Do I need to switch careers? So we have a navigating employment group on Facebook that, that has Zoom conversations. We have gatherings based on demographic connections. For instance, we have an LHON sisterhood, which is any woman who carries the mutation who may be um, a mother to affected children like we are. It could also be women who carry the mutation and are trying to figure out, do I want to have children? How's that going to feel? What do I say to my partner? Um, so we have very rich conversations on that kind of a topic. We have an assistive technology group where we focus on the adaptive technology that's out there and we you know, trade tips and tricks. There's a whole support com component of what, what LH1 Collective is all about. And there's also uh, a dedication to driving the research forward. And that means being clear on who's doing research in the world of LHON and working through what are the most interesting uh, opportunities going forward and how do we support and advance that? How can we bring people together? How can we take the power of the community and perhaps do fundraising to support certain work and which work and why? That's basically the the very small aims. No, I'm kidding. We have a we have broad goals and important goals. You know, in in the perfect world one day you know lhon is no longer an issue right there's magically it's gone but until then you know we want to work to um do what we can to drive solutions you know make sure there's patients ready and able to go into clinical trials when that should happen and also very much ensure that people who are living with lhon wherever they are sighted supporter unaffected carrier affected individual they're they're living the best life they can by by crowdsourcing the knowledge and information that resides in this community i love that the crowdsourcing the knowledge in the community it's it's really sometimes difficult to find that knowledge exactly the type of organization you've developed you've hopefully made it easy or easier for people to be involved and to benefit from each other's experiences it's so important so melinda what does it mean for you to be a patient advocate on an everyday basis that patient advocacy was what drove us to start lh1 collective and my husband is the third of the three co-founders. You've got two on the call today and, and Chris Marsh. Uh, and we're working to broaden that volunteer base so that we can meet the two goals. Lissa was mentioning the supporting of our current LH1 community as uh, one goal and the other being the promoting that scientific progress forward. And we realize that we are, neither of us, clinical trial researchers, nor are we laboratory researchers, or are we a biopharma ourselves, and so on and so forth. So how do we go about that in a constructive manner that is as effective as possible? And so in addition, while there is no cure, providing the best patient support, and patients in this case are just people that have LHON and having them have the best life as possible. The second aspect is that promoting of that scientific progress. And to do that well, 
we've made a couple strategic partnerships. The first is with an organization called RareX that's just been folded back into Global Genes. And RareX has a data collection program for rare diseases. And we, with LHON, have partnered with them to have a medical registry that they house. And the data within that medical registry is then for LHON participants is then ready and accessible and free to access by researchers in biopharma. We have over 150 currently participants in that registry in, a, in our first year. And, and our goal is lofty, but a thousand is the number. We really would like this to be a rich and well-populated registry so that those who are researching LHON are encouraged to begin that research if they haven't entered that space or continue that research if they're already there. And then the second strategic partnership that we've focused on is with the Milken Institute with Faster Cures to really galvanize an interest in and continue the conversation at the academia level and within the biopharma world. We really needed a partner that can promote those conversations, encourage that dialogue, and help us to move forwards towards competitive sprint and scientific endeavors that we may not have uh, had the capacity or the skill set to, uh, to have brought to the forefront without that partnership. So we're very excited and honored to work with the Milken Institute as well. And, uh, and that both of those partnerships are, are proving to be very constructive and um, positive experiences. So those are the ways that in the advocacy world, we try to focus on, on who the community is because we need our, our individuals who are affected with LHON and, and their family members to be mentally healthy, to be ready for what comes next in their lives. Uh, and then we also need to promote what comes next in all of our lives can be that scientific progress that I believe the scientific community is so ready to take on where genetic approaches are concerned, genetic editing, ultimately genetic uh, gene therapy in the current sense. Let's hope so. You guys have shared so much wonderful information in your stories with us and you both, your families are true stories of resilience. And I'm sure that anyone that gets involved in the organization will benefit from getting to know the two of you better, much less all the rest of the people that are involved in your organization. So I commend you both and your kids. And thank you so much for being a part of our show. So thank you so much, Melinda and Lissa. It was so good to get to know both of you through this. And I look forward to learning more about how you both develop LHON Collective as the years go on. Thanks, Marcy. It was fun. Thank you so much for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I encourage you to browse other Energy in Action podcast episodes. I'm so inspired by the resilience of those in previous episodes, and I know you will be too. 